0: If you learn how to control it, the entrepreneurial brain becomes the most powerful tool in your arsenal. In this podcast, I will dive deep into the psychology and biology behind it to help you understand yourself and ultimately become your best, most authentic self. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Entrepreneurial Brain Podcast. Today I'm here with Cole Ridley. Psychedelics for High-Performing Industry Leaders, Biohackers, and Entrepreneurs Committed to Elevating Humanity. Love that. Short, spicy. Cole, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. All my favorite topics rolled into one, so I'm ready.
0: This will be fun. So let's hop straight into it. Tell me a little bit about your story, especially already looking at psychedelics. When did they arise? When did you get the call to dive deeper there? So yeah, tell me a little bit about your journey.
1: Yeah, you know, for me, I don't know that I got the call so much as they called, like they found me. I never was actively searching for it. So I would need to bring a little bit of context. So I had some childhood experiences and trauma that put me into an at-risk youth category got kicked out of three high schools, didn't graduate from high school, ended up in a coma from a drug overdose at 17. Fast forward after that experience, I got more into the D.A.R.E. program, Partnership for a Drug-Free America. I was an advocate for substance abuse education. And so being thrown into that realm, what I was looking for is I needed some sort of purpose because of everything that had transpired. And so I started speaking at high schools and colleges and universities and the state of Utah, where I grew up, uh, actually gave me a day of recognition for all my work. So that's just to, to show how deeply I was entrenched in the not necessarily the war on drugs, but substance abuse, education and trauma and uh, addiction. And so as I, I actually did that professionally, full time speaking for four years or so, doing national television, you know, in front of millions of people all over the world. This was around the early 2000s or so. And fast forward, as I got to 23, I realized I was trying to make up for everything I wasn't in the work that I was doing. And more often than not, my story was getting changed for someone else's narrative. So they'd leave pieces out in articles or they would edit together in video and it, it would change the context. And that wasn't feeling good for me anymore. So I decided to stop um, speaking because it didn't feel like I was actually helping. And I realized I hadn't slowed down to do any of my own personal work. So at 23, I left the professional speaking realm. And then in about 2008 or so, <clears throat> now at this point, I'm 26. 27, 26. I don't remember. And I had started doing a lot of personal work because I had one moment, I went to Disneyland with my ex in-laws. And I sat down on the ground and just started to cry because the swelling in my knees and the pain in my body, I'd put on like 45 pounds. Um, I had fibromyalgia endometriosis, I had arthritis in my right knee, I was inflamed and in pain all of the time. And so I just Sat down and started to cry because I was like, I am not into staying in this life for another 50 years, let alone another 20 years, if my body is at this place at 26. Right. And so that made me really dive deep into figuring out what was going on and really doing that deep, deeper interpersonal work. And so that was about the time or about a year into that journey. It was just the right time and the right friend and the right synchronicities that psychedelics came uh, for a journey with a guy from Peru. And when my friend explained about what journeys were, I thought that it would be like some, I don't know, shamanic guy all in white, like swinging plants around when he says he works with plants. I didn't even understand what that meant. Um, so my intro, I got there, I was terrified. It was pinging all of my control and wait, but it, once an addict, always an addict. I can't do something like this or else I'm, I could end up being an addict again. And so all of those things were pinging off. And like I said, if it hadn't been exactly that friend at exactly that time with enough synchronicities to support it, I don't know that I ever would have. I mean, I guess I can't say that definitively, but I had so much conditioning around it but it was a it was a challenging concept initially.
0: So let's start with like the, the basics. What are psychedelics? What we are speaking about here, plant medicines. Let's define that a little bit for people.
1: Totally. So when I speak context of psychedelics, I'm usually referring to MDMA, which is also known as ecstasy, MDA, which is known as sassafras, um, mushrooms, magic mushrooms. There's lots of different kinds, which a lot of people don't know. There's not just one magic mushroom. There's lots of varieties on lots of different continents most continents have some psychedelic mushroom Um, and then i'm also referring to wachuma or san pedro so those are the ones that i reference the most um and the ones that are most commonly referenced and then depending on who you talk to ketamine as a psychedelic because of the impact on the brain and so when it comes to what a lot of people also don't know is mushrooms are not plants Fungi is a, def, is a totally different thing. So you can say plant medicine and not be talking about fungi. Usually when people are talking about plant medicine um, would be like wachuma or ayahuasca, um, especially because in those lineages, they really deeply refer to it as medicine. And even for me, I don't use the term plant medicine unless I'm using it for context for society. With all the work I've done now over the last 13 or so years, We say power plants and fungi. They're spirit teachers and mentors. They're not here to fix anything. And only because of my English context, water could be considered medicine, right? In hyperhydration, we know the healing properties or the necessity of water, but we don't call water medicine. And so for me, because I don't call other things that help my body heal medicine, I just think they're for empowerment. They don't fix it. They help create a... an energy and an environment for healing. And so the same started to become true for me with plants and and fungi and other psychedelics. They're not my medicine, they're my mentors and my guides. And because I come to the experiences as, uh, as a student, I feel like that's also how I get treated. I think that the plants actually give me a different level of kindness than I see other people experience because I'm not looking for anything to fix me. I'm not looking to take, I'm coming to learn so that I can then teach and pass those teachings on.
0: Let's talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about set and setting. We touched on it ceremonial. It's super different than just taking it with friends versus taking it alone. So any any thoughts where we start set and setting of taking this? Totally.
1: Yeah. A lot of people assign that their outcome or arriving at the journey and the journey itself or the experience itself is the work. That's not the case. That's actually, as far as time and and attention, it's the least amount, even if it's the greatest impact in the moment. So set and setting isn't just about where you're doing it. It's an internal set and setting. What are you doing to prepare? Um, Doing things like breath work, hugely beneficial before you go into a psychedelic experience, because there can be moments of overwhelm where your neurology is opening and it can feel quite chaotic, that if you remember to go back to the breath, which you practice in breath work and in many meditation styles, that helps you be in that chaos while there's, we call it the drop-in. As a plant is first setting on, there can be a lot happening that feels chaotic and feel like a lot in the body. And just breathing through it makes it where you're not attaching to suffering. And so set and setting is not only when you get there, how it's set up, where it is, the people that are in it, but it's also an internal set and setting. How are you preparing for this experience. And I don't mean researching other people's experiences. I mean, how are you caring for your body? Because your body is the vehicle of the experience.
0: Mm.
1: How are you hydrating? How are your salts? um, How, you know, the week leading up to it at a minimum, cleaning up your diet, because eating really heavy fats slows your di- digestion and so there's a lot of different cosmologies and leading up as far as dieta depending or diet dietas diet in spanish there's a lot of things in diet that's recommended in leading up to a shamanic or plant medicine journey and i'm going to give you the scientific purposes besides that it's going to be dogma and belief depending on what lineage you study, what ancestral tradition, but most of what you hear now is not traditional before 30, 40 years ago. A lot of the things you hear about dieta is new. It's not as if it's been some part of an ancient tradition. In most plant medicines, an ancient tradition, only the shaman or medicine man took, at least in ayahuasca. So in your preparation, it's your pre-intention. You're setting your intention leading up to the journey, if you're looking to have clarity, clear your vehicle, clear your mind from sugars or uh, caffeine, if you can, Uh, especially with caffeine, I really recommend if people can give themselves two weeks leading up to a big experience to do so. Because anything that alters your physiology, this includes supplements as well, getting yourself to more of a baseline, a few days leading up to it is kind of where you're coming from. So if you're doing spikes of sugar and then crashes of energy, or if you're eating a lot of fats that are just heavier in the body and how it coats it, that can impact the absorption of the plant or the mushrooms. And so the opportunity is to kind of like even out your diet at least when you're first exploring. Everyone has different sensitivities. Some people need to fast the whole day of to really prepare their system. Other people don't feel like they do, but I really feel uh, when you're first exploring the set and setting leading up to it, first, the physical set and setting, the mental set and setting, and then also asking questions who you're going to sit with. Uh, we actually have a download that I can you know give you to be able to offer in the show notes called the facilitator. It's like a facilitator questionnaire where it's asking, and this is for me, part of set and setting how many people are going to be there? Energetically, that matters. Uh, as someone that's been in this work for you know thirteen and change years and has sat in hundred, well, probably over a thousand at this point of ceremonies between being of service and helping and conducting and and the, my own personal journeys. Um, how many people are going to be there? What is the support like? Pre, post, during? Like, what does that look like? Um, How do they handle onboarding, right? Do they ask you medical questions? I sure hope so. If they're not asking you about medications and supplementation, that's a pretty big red flag for me, Um, which we can get into, you know, the wire as far as asking. But then it's when you get there, how does it feel to you? Does it feel like it's very clear? if there's a lot of clutter, if there's a lot of people, all of that creates noise in, the, in what we call the field. And so for us, long before you arrive, the container is being created. And a, there's almost like a weaving of the container that's happening with everyone coming. So set and setting is the preparation internally, and then externally, or if you're doing your own journey, cleaning the space up, making sure that there's not um, any sharp edges, making sure that there's soft pillows, that there's You know, nausea can happen with mushrooms as well, making sure there's something if you needed to purge, um, having water, you know, the more, again, intentionality, bringing rituals, if you're into ancestral traditions, bringing some of the objects of your family. I like to bring, I wear a lot of rings uh, that are different stones and crystals that I like to have them there because if I start to feel uh, a little shaky, it's almost like having a totem to take in with me. Um, And then we can get into more about all the different ways that, you know, a lot of folks prepare, but the set and setting is just like it sounds, right? How is the internal set? How is it set up? And then the setting, where is it? Maybe you would prefer to be outdoors. Maybe you would prefer to be inside. Um, All of that stuff impacts the journey. It doesn't make it or break it necessarily because that, again, depends on how you frame it it does impact it so thinking ahead of what makes you feel safe what makes you feel settled and secure is really important
0: coming to holding space a little bit because my experience like i've done most of this my psychedelic experience were either with with a group of friends or many alone like really introspective and i was like okay i can handle it i was very secure lost i still had some kind of respect but i didn't really expect that anything could happen it really would throw me off and then going into this vashuma ceremony I think two weeks ago and it was like a whole different level because the the my my state if you wanted was like still i could outside without the fire and i was able to walk back and was clearer than many people but then in like the connection between the people what oh, the intensity that was really was a whole other level like how even hard to describe in words like i'm a very rational coming from my engineering background, but the kind of connection and the synchronization and the energies going up and down with body noises and other things, people puking. and my brain, I'm already HSP, so very open person, then even more open. And I really struggled with like being in that environment. The theme was letting go, obviously, like just let it happen, let your body do the work. But I struggled with, as soon as I could let go and be myself, then there was like another sound and it was like that energy and that energy. So I would love to hear any any insights about holding space. What's your experience there? Anything you would want to share on that?
1: Yeah, I think uh, when it comes to holding space, everyone might give you a slightly different answer or perspective. I'll give you my perspective of holding space and what I consider it to be. If I'm there to hold space, uh, people hold space for their friends all the time. Say you have a friend that's just sharing something very intimate, very private, or very just like part of their heart you hold space in that moment for them to have a safe container to express or to share. So I feel that quite often we are holding space for others all the time. When it comes to a container like with plant medicine, power plant experiences, holding space for me if I'm in a facilitator role is different than if I'm in a participation role because I feel that The most empowering work I've done is to learn how to hold space for myself and then allowing support. That means knowing where your energy is coming and transferring to. I'll start with the individual. If I've got a lot of anger and a lot of emotions that are coming up, when you are not able to hold space for yourself, it almost bleeds out to other people. So I might be nauseous and I can spread my nausea to another person who's very empathetic and takes things in. Right. And so we actually can have this transference even of nausea, which is how I even learned I was empathic. I never really believed in that. I mean, I feel like I could feel someone's anger, but I didn't know that I could take on physical things like that.
0: Mirror neurons and action.
1: <laughs> Oh, listen. And it actually i had one specific time in Peru. We guide trips down to Peru. And we're down there. So we don't facilitate the ceremonies if we're going to Peru because we've got these amazing Huachumeros and, you know, different lineages that we want to experience their magic and their tradition. And so when we go down there, we merely integrate people. We help in the integration and the application of the of what we know or what we learn. And so we were in a Wachuma ceremony and it's a full day experience. We started about 9.30 in the morning. This is probably 7 p.m., depending on the person, um, it can be a uh, 12 to 14, even 16 hour experience for some people. And it depends on how sensitive you are to it. I can feel it with for 24 hours, Um, but I know the nuance because I work, I've worked with it very intimately and, and it's my I don't know if it's my favorite, that and and some varieties of uh, psilocybin, but so in this experience, it's about 7 p.m. So overall, we're through the majority of the experience, at least the bigger waves that can come through. And I was talking to a woman and holding space for her in that moment, for her to share her heart for some things that came up, some very tender things. So I'm just listening, holding the space for her to be able to share within the space. And all of a sudden, I get really nauseous. I hadn't been nauseous all day at all. I stand up and I'm like, hold that thought. I walk outside and I just start purging. And what I realized as she was sharing this story, I was taking it in. I was consuming her hurt. I was consuming her, this realization that she had. And in that moment I said, all right, I'm not carrying anybody's stuff anymore. This is officially the end. I've got to figure out how to, process this because I coach a lot of people in a lot of different ways from personal training to you know facilitation practices to whatever and so that's when I started to really spend time learning how do I hold space for myself to protect myself not that I'm protecting myself from people but so that it's not this such a permeable uh container that people can just you know get into my system and so I learned how to hold space for myself It's like boundaries, it's an energetic boundary so that things aren't coming in. Then when it comes to holding space as a facilitator, then I'm creating, for me, say it starts with safety of the container. So as a facilitator, I do not take any of the plant at all because I want to be able to perceive the entire container without the influence of other people. And if I participate and even take a tiny bit, it opens up my channels to that permeability again, and then that influences how I feel and can make it more challenging to discern if there's something that it, that I'm concerned about. And so for me with the physical safety, I choose to not participate at all because I can feel all of it. I can feel the changes and the waves and the ebbs and the flow now. And so for me to hold the space means first, creating a safety of the container long before we get there. Like I was talking about weaving the container starts long before you're on the journey before you're on the journey, uh, dreams, synchronicities, all that starts to happen. And so creating safety means we do a very, intricate in-depth onboarding process of someone's life history since birth and even before birth if their mom was in a traumatic or stressful environment and then we want surgical history uh, childhood experiences religious background cultural conditionings or cultural considerations because what someone went through a lot of the time I'll say the majority of the time before the age of nine years old I have a pretty good sense of how their journey is going to go Because there's a way that the brain develops that we as humans are unique and different and we aren't in a lot of other ways in how we journey or how things manifest or how they show up through the body. So by going through this questionnaire, I'm creating the space for safety because the the safer someone feels, the deeper in the experience they can go. Deeper doesn't mean more uh, hallucinations. Deeper could be feeling more. It could be feeling for the first time after being on SSRIs forever that they just tapered off of, but it, it gives an anchor point where it's like, cool, I know I'm safe, so I don't have to stay here and protect my physical body. So I'm creating a container, a space for them to be able to access and go more into their experience. And it is a lot on the facilitator's body. And this is something that many do not consider. And we've had... Um, shaman facilitators, ayahuas ghettos that after 30, 40 years in this work are still having kidney issues, liver issues, like the parts of the body that filter and process and clean have problems because there is a energetic hygiene that needs to happen in the container too. Um, Afterwards, I'll do cold plunge or rebounding or things to get my lymphatic system washed out, cleaned, compression therapy. This is when biohacking comes in Mm. for me to, my body's a container, right? And a space. So for me, it's the intentionality of creating the space initially and holding it. Then there's the experience itself. And then there's the space that is my body that holds the space like energetically it you can feel and perceive all of it which is why sometimes you could have a conversation with a friend and feel wiped afterwards where you're like wow Mm -hmm. i'm drained right it's the physical body is holding space for what's happening and it's depleting its resources and so becoming attuned to those cues is important in space holding because if you're dealing with people in big processes frequently um the body needs time to recalibrate and the more you can support it in in calibration helps it to maintain the space with more integrity as far as how it's doing it in integrity
0: yeah i love that one very quick thing that you mentioned you are not um taking any psychedelics or plant power plants when you facilitate is that is that something that's very common i'm very neutral i only knew that shamans always partake the journey is that something you
1: yeah it depends so in many ayahuasca traditions, the shaman does or the ayahuasquero or the curandero, right? The curator, the facilitator of the process. Mm -hmm. Part of where I think that came from is because initially in many tribal traditions down in the jungles, the ayahuasquero was the only one that took it because he's the one or she's the one that understands the landscape of the psychedelic space with ayahuasca to get the Answers or the tools or the information, and then he would bring it or she would bring it back to the patient or the person they're working with. And so, what I have found and what I hear a lot of facilitators talk about is that it helps them tap in. I get that. And I have seen many instances where a facilitator took too much and suddenly they're not even able to keep a safe container because now they're in a process or they're in a trauma or they're in a wounding and people do get hurt at journeys it's not that it's common and it's not something certainly people talk about but for me it's important that the physical safety of everyone is the number one priority physical safety emotional safety spiritual safety and so some facilitators or shaman um, just because someone's a shaman or facilitator does not mean they are responsible human beings. <laughs> um, you know, I think that there's a uh people often will place them on pedestals, like they're more evolved humans. They have a skill set in the spiritual realms that's more developed that does not make them rationally more um considerate as far as possibilities. Um, and at the end of the day, it's not about me. And I don't, I also do not identify as a shaman. I am a facilitator in the third dimension here to ensure the safety of the bodies and the the people that are the travelers so that they can go to the places that they need to go. And because of the way that we do things, I see how it impacts the outcomes of the people that journey with us because they know we could carry them if we needed to. They know that we can get them outside. Everyone gets what they need in the journeys that we've facilitated over the years. What that means is if one person wants to be talkative, we are not here to decide for anyone how they should do it. Now, if their propensity is to talk and avoid the inner work, it's a dialogue. I still am not here to enforce or create a new box for someone to fit into. So we operate in a very different space within these realms because we are looking from a, from a futuristic, what are we looking to create in this world, which is we don't want, we're not looking to perpetuate oppressive dynamics, which is go lay on your mat, don't move or there's something wrong with you. Um, shame's a big thing in, in the community as well, whether or not people are aware of it. And we're here to answer the question, what's next? That doesn't mean traumas and things from the past don't come up, but we're here. A lot of who we're working with is evolutionaries, thought leaders, who are here to say, all right, the systems we've been using are not working. What's what's here to be developed and to be established? So we're also doing it from a slightly different lens. And so the, the traveler's intention matters. If you're looking for more of the mystical experience, then working with someone that's more of a shaman, energy worker, spiritual person may resonate. On the flip side of that, if you're looking to, you're trying to figure out what's next for your business and you're a contribution-based business and you're trying to find out how to increase your impact, then you may come to us because we can help you conceive outside of your current perceptual lens. And if there's anything in the past that's blocking that imagination or that ability to, to dream big, that's what we're here for. So we're not trying to fix things to move forward. We're here to move forward and say anything that's a roadblock to that, we call into the space. And so it's a it depends on the person's intention and there's lots of ways to do it. Ours isn't the way, ours is a way. Just like ayahuasca's a way or psilocybin's a way, wachuma's a way. But at the end of the day they're all perspectives and it's about trusting your individual resonance on the who and the when and the what as you go through the journey.
0: That was yeah, awesome. love that and would love to continue there. Like you mentioned, facilitator was a shaman. I love that. And would love your thoughts on I mean, what I when I think about shamanism and um, these ceremonies is like learning from like a lot, a lot of time of experiences that humanity and our cultures evolved. So taking things obviously learning how do we work with the plants. But also we are in very different societies and you mentioned that there are like different usages for something. I would love any thoughts on like integrated then, modern and old, going new ways, but also staying grounded. So.
1: Yeah, well, the thing is, even the idea that something is ever new when it comes to to any plant work or, or fungi work or their psychedelic work is a bit laughable, right? Because ultimately, we don't really know what's transpired in the minds of humans. When you look at Machu Picchu, when you look at some of these spaces that were developed by the mystics and the teachers and the priestess of old, and as you do more research into some of the old philosophers that now um, say in the book that Brian Mororescu just put out called The Immortality Code or The Immortality Key, that's what it is, The Immortality Key, he's been bridging more research around their findings of a psychedelic brew from ancient Greece. And we're talking like, you know, pre the time of Christ as far as history. And so now we're starting to find more signs that we were merely disconnected from this technology. Not that it we just discovered it and it only came from Peru. No, in fact, every continent, if you research, has master teacher plants. We've just become so disconnected from them. And so, you know, tradition is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And tradition is a prison. We cannot continue to hold on tightly to tradition because in some traditions, a woman gets her, you know, clitoris cut off. In some traditions, you know, men are getting circumcised. In some traditions, women cannot drive. At what point, as societies do we deem things as no longer functional for the individual or for or necessary for the social construct and so part of tradition is recognizing well yeah it was traditional but for who and for what what did it serve and as we ask these questions and then we look forward to go okay what things are functional which things are not functional what things are going to have to be left by the wayside evolved or changed and so that's the intentionality that we do things is what these plants and fungi afford us is to be connected to the earth to look at um cambo or you know the sonoran desert frog and say look they are incredible medicines at the right time and place however it is not a sustainable practice if we've got tens of thousands of people going to these frogs for cambo being it's a poison that they burn the skin to enter in that a lot of people use for a basically a whole system reset for simplicity purposes or five mao dmt through the sonoran tree the desert frog those are already becoming um either endangered or at risk creatures and so as we look forward it's also considering what is sustainable in this expansiveness in this healing modalities and what are our options to explore that is not detrimental to entire species peyote as well is an at-risk cacti it doesn't grow that easily versus something like wachuma san pedro very easy to grow Psilocybin mushrooms of varying types, many are very easy to cultivate, and I'm not supporting any illicit or illegal growth or behavior. I'm merely sharing from a uh, cultivation perspective. If we're going to look at what, what, where our focus could be moving forward, it's at sustainable practices. Many people wanna go to ayahuasca, it takes a long time, not only for the vine to grow, but all of the additional ingredients. It's not just one plant, it's many. And depending on whether it's yellow ayahuasca or black or red or blue, these are all different mixes and even that's loose. So as we look at what evolution is and we have this conscious awareness, all of us are conscious. What are we conscious of? So, on how my practice impacts my day to day moving forward in this evolutionary standpoint, is having the foresight to say, wow, if I promote 5MAO DMT as this, you know, cure all incredible powerful medicine, and that increases to tens of thousands of people wanting access to it, I am directly impacting the future of this species and so as we look at where we've been and where we're going exploring the idea of higher dose psilocybin than even ayahuasca most people have not explored it and i'm not telling people to go you know take 10 grams of mushrooms tomorrow i'm saying that there's still so much unexplored people are assigning things outside of themselves and if i'm going to look forward then also in consideration of the tools I'm currently using, is it sustainable long-term for me and my community, me and the people we're looking to serve and to help and to be with? And so I consider where we've been. I imagine, feel into, ask the, the spirits of these teachers and allies to, you know, to clarify for me or to show me. And I got a very clear message in my last experience that said that I had two years to educate as many people as possible about psychedelic exploration. And that I realized I am a shamanic strategist. I'm at the intersection of someone finding their way home. So they come to me, I hear their background, their cultural considerations and conditionings. And I go, you know what, this lineage or this teacher or this shaman sounds resonant for you. So they might teach you about aliens and the Palladians and and all the things that may be of interest to you. You may be an innovative entrepreneur that's here for the systems and you've got the engineer mindset, but we've got to also look at some of the conditioning of the mind of control and drive to get a more relaxed organism so that it can heal. And that for me is the only way that we can really conceive moving into the future is it's going to take all of us doing different things and using different language because we come from different backgrounds. We come from a lot of also fractured cultural tradition where I don't have any cultural traditions. I've got American ones, uh, but even those I've never really practiced or celebrated and so for me it's been I've been doing more research around the ancestry that we know that we have and then there's whole chunks of our history that's totally lost like we were all blonde haired blue eyes until a couple generations ago and all of a sudden everything went dark brown came from somewhere nobody knows where
0: (laughs) that's for sure yeah a lot of in there Uh
1: all right
0: Shamanic strategist. That sounds like yes. something in just giving my love for strategy. So could you elaborate a little bit more on what is a shamanic strategist?
1: So the term shamanic strategist for me, because I've studied with a lot of different tribes and traditions, and I do a lot with energy and in sessions, I play live music. So it, there are there is certainly shamanic aspects to what I do. But ultimately it's about helping each person find the way to increase their impact. If someone wants to be the one to save or help recovering um, like children that have been trafficked or young women have, that have been sex slaves, my goal is to help them find their version of their freedom to support their mission. So uh, that is where the strategy comes into play. Yes, I can help someone in an experience, but what's after the experience? Who do they need to know? What do, what do they need to understand? Uh, what things would be supportive for the integration of what they know? So that's where the strategy comes in. We have the shamanic experience, even for someone that's very engineer or uh, you know biochemist or biohacker background, they come to me because I say, of course I can help your business grow. And then when they get there, we don't talk anything about their business because what it really has to do is is tapping someone into their heart, into their purpose, into their mission, into the relationships. They may not be showing up in the ways they want to. And so what that does, what that affords for me is to call in people for what they want and let the plants and fungi give them what they need. And in that In that realization that they ultimately always get, we come up with a strategy. What's next? Because quite often for entrepreneurs or or, uh, impact-driven people, there's some realizations that can come into play that they're like, well, what next? Maybe they're in a marriage or in a business partnership or in something that's going to have to change. So we need a strategy. We call that integration. But it's not only just integrating the knowing and touching in with it every day but who would you need on your life team to support this truth? Who would you need to be around you and to remind you daily? And so for us, then it's about strategizing after that. How are you going to get, now that we know where you are, how are you going to get over there? Here's what you know. Here's what you've realized. Maybe here's what you've seen in the future, but how are we going to get you from here to there? And so that's where the strategist component really comes into play is in the integration process, particularly the 90 days to follow, where it's daily journaling of a physical book that we actually print, or if people are international, write an ebook, that's body tracking, learning the cues of your body, because the intelligence of your body is incredible. And when you can integrate with your body's intelligence, plus your mind intelligence, then you're able to operate from instincts plus mind and rationalization and that becomes a whole other superpower mm-hmm. where you meet a new business partner and your body goes eh, i don't think so and you and you pause and then you feel into it and even if it makes sense on paper i don't know many people who haven't been at least in one relationship that looked good on paper whether a partnership or a or a, a intimate relationship and then you get in it and you're like, well, it looks good, but it doesn't feel good. <laughs> so by integrating both of those together brings incredible opportunity.
0: Yeah, I love that the, the, the intelligence of the body is incredible. And they're already in science, like things like embodied cognition the realization. It's basically one big nervous system. And it, the entire thing processes uh, processes our, our problems. And it's something I think in my life recently has made the biggest impact. I'm doing tons of Barefoot working, yoga, embodiment, really connecting to my body. And yeah, in terms of many, many areas, it's like really a game changer and highly recommended. Biohacking and psychedelics. Something I mean, we have been in quite a few clubhouse rooms, and I love every single one of them on these topics. Yeah, but love like the intersection. Where what, what kind of tools do we integrate or anything? What, what feel like? Just like in Clubhouse, what comes to mind when you (laughs) have (laughs) I mean, and it it always
1: changes, right? So the beautiful thing is, again, I see that it's an integration of the times where in North and South American, uh, like in Native American cultures of North and South, there is a prophecy called the eagle and the condor, which is the meeting of North and South again, that after 700 years of being not only separate, but also a bit against each other that now is the time of the eagle and the condor according to both prophecy for it to integrate and how i see that is the technological and then also the ancient traditions coming together to be one and so for me biohacking and mysticism are here to integrate the scientists used to be the mystics the medicine men or the doctors were also you know, the teachers or the priestess or some of those, it was a more integrated approach. So biohacking, again, could be anything. Biohacking could be having coffee or water or whatever, but when we're referring to it in this context, I'm thinking about ice baths. Say you're in a wachuma experience and you've got a headache and thoughts are just spinning in your head and you can feel that all the energy is staying in your head, right? And it doesn't have to be ice water. Any water is actually great, but ice water will really shift things. By bringing the body into the experience, let's say you're, there's something spinning in your head, none of your tools are working to be able to release this thought and this energy that's just staying up in your head. By getting into cold plunge, the heightened neuroplastic state has a deeper impact when you wash it off or the cold that brings, you know, kind of shocks the system a bit just by spending three, four minutes in an ice bath and then doing contrast, if you have the ability to, the impact of that is exponential because it wipes the loop. And because of the heightened state, you can wipe the loop and then say you, while you're in the ice bath, um, you're saying something like, uh, Tapping your sternum is also powerful, and saying something like, uh, "Really, what you want to affirm?" Let's say I was spinning in my head about, um, not about not loving myself, or think, you know, like just stuck in my head, self criticism. Then I could get in an ice bath, just breathe for the couple minutes. Then when I get out, just tap the sternum and be like, "I am free. I am relaxed. I feel rejuvenated." And by saying it out loud, I experience the vibration in my throat. I hear it in my ears. If you can look in the mirror, then you will witness it. So your eyes experience it. And tapping the sternum in any psychedelic experience as you're having a realization is really powerful because you're involving the body more. And by saying it out loud, your body experiences it because sometimes you can have a realization in another realm that doesn't translate back to the body from what I've seen and what I've experienced. So with biohacking, even simple things leading up, boosting your magnesium. Magnesium is one of the biggest um, deficits people have that impacts their journey. Um, And then post having magnesium, maybe taking more than usual. Um, It can be afterwards sensory deprivation tanks, incredible integration tool, not only to get those salts and to get that magnesium back in the body, but for the body to fully relax and for you to just process, maybe 24 hours after your journey. There's tons of adaptogens. There's a lot of other things that you can use, but even just like the little rebounding trampoline. I've had uh, times where I was in a challenging part of a journey that just by getting on there and not jumping, but just bouncing to get things moving just helps to open up the energetic channels in my body just by getting my lymphatic system moving. Obviously, you don't do it if you're too altered, but even little things like that change your state, but it shows your body and your mind how quickly your state can be changed. So you can really use anything um, and not all facilitators will allow you to use things in journeys, but I only go to containers where people are empowering me to do what I believe I need in the moment if it's not at the detriment, you know, to the container or to another person intentionally hurting them.
0: Yeah. Love that. State change, state regulation, like having done a lot of work in the is obviously something I've been thinking about a lot. And in particular, a few weeks ago, I had a very nice LSD trip at the beach, which showed me that in particular, because when you go into the ocean, it's like poof, super grounding, you're in the moment, pretty clear. And then once mm-hmm. you go out and the, 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 you're, you're dry and then you can, fall back into this very psychedelic state again. It was super interesting to consciously shift my mind state and be that groundedness. And we even did like some Wim Hof breathing, like how quick your body can change. But yeah, time yeah. is running out. And there's one thing that I definitely want, don't want to miss out because I, I love the concept of the wounded Puma. I've already talked about it ah, yes. quite a bit and tying that a little bit to entrepreneurs, maybe even if you have some, some For, examples. Sure because I wanted to touch on the the work that you do with entrepreneurs as an example, how they integrate psychedelics. So let's go.
1: Totally. So because so many of our teachers are from Peru and in Peru, we learned a lot through the lens of the Andean um, and influenced by Incan cultures. And so in South America, in Peru, they have the Andean cross, and it's got the snake, puma, and the condor. I won't get into the mysticism components necessarily, but what we started to see is with people that we work with, in particular innovators and entrepreneurs and just people that are in more of that drive and that focus, is that we saw three energies of evolution that people were going through that came to us. First, we saw snake, transformational process, shedding the skin. It's like that moment you wake up in your life, that you're in a job that you hate, or a relationship that you don't wanna be in. And so you're just really ready to discover who you are. And so all of the expectations, conditioning, you are shedding that. And it's a process that can be a little overwhelming for some people. Um, It's a time to really get grounded. And when someone's in a snake energy, ayahuasca may not be the plant, um, or uh, LSD may not be the substance. When someone's in a very chaotic shift point, putting them into a chaotic experience can actually deepen it. Um, For some folks, or we've seen it enough times, that what I've seen is more supportive of the physical body, not of the mind. I'm talking of the physical body is to slow things down with something like Wachuma because they're already in quite a bit of chaos. So that's snake energy. The next is Puma. Puma energy is where most entrepreneurs, focus-driven people are. They can see what they want. It's, It's beautiful because it's not above snake energy. It's just different. But after someone's gone through that transformational process, then they know what they want. They go for it. There's agility and flexibility, and they've got this power and endurance. The thing is, quite often entrepreneurs are working in a Puma space, but they're doing it in a wounded Puma. Wounded Puma, eight out of 10 out of the over a thousand people that we've had fill out our onboarding forms When someone's a wounded Puma, that basically means there's something underlying driving them to succeed. Yes, purpose. But when we dig deeper than that, it comes from one of two backgrounds, either a parent that gave, usually the father, either a parent gave significance and love for high achievement. So it's like, oh, great job. You got A's or you got a scholarship, uh, something like that. Or was alcoholic, uh, emotionally absent or physically absent. And usually the father, eight out of 10 was the father that directly impacted that Puma energy. And so what we would find is once someone got somewhere in the like 38 to 48 range, they'd have a health crash because of that wounded Puma energy, because it's mind over matter, it's hustle, it's grind at the cost of the organism. And very often, Puma Energy have learned how to slow down to, to sleep and to rest, but not to relax. And a system that cannot relax, cannot heal the same. It's just going to prioritize the healing versus systemically be able to really support the healing. And so people were, were coming to us after they had a big health crash. And they're probably a year out of it, you know, because they had to go to specialists and adrenal fatigue and all these other, other aspects. And then it was like, okay, I still want to be successful. I don't want to change that, but I'm recognizing that I'm still trying to make up or prove or, you know, where it's driving from is not sustainable. So I'm here to consider otherwise. And that's where a lot of the healing starts to come in, where people come in. I can't do a health crash. Tell me how to make my business better. And we're like, sure. Sure. Then they come in and we don't talk about their business at all. Mm -hmm. So you know, then we talk about what's driving the the puma energy. Uh, Puma energy is incredible when it's wounded. It's um, reactive. It's aggressive. It's agitated. uh, You know, claws are out, and it can't relax because it knows it has to go hunt again to get more money or to build a new business or to financially scale. And so from there, what we look for or what we have been focused on is getting folks from puma energy into condor energy condor are vulture type birds down in south america that with like a 13-ish foot wingspan and they fly at 20,000 feet they're stunning they're known as nature's cleanup crew which for us is a lot of the innovators and people that we work with they're taking the old systems evolving it and changing it just the way that a vulture breaks down what was dead and what, what is no longer functioning the way that it was. And so in condor energy, what's beautiful is they're usually the messengers of the heavens or that's one of the ways they're known in the, in mysticism. So it's people that are bringing the messages of earth or from you know God or from source and bringing it to the planet because vultures still eat on the ground. They still come to connect to the earth. And the other thing that's very profound is with condors, it's people that have had enough experience now to be able to still scale. It takes a lot for a condor to take off. There's still a lot of energy, but they can get or they know how to climb to heights faster so that they can ride the winds. So it's really now they've got support systems and perspective and experience that they can see the horizon. They can see a storm coming. They don't have to do it that way again. And they, they actually are the most adaptive and flexible to the environment. They're not controlling the wind, but they know where they're going. They can see where they're going, but they don't have the rigidity to have to control it. And this is usually when there's more collaboration. That's the wind. That's the support around them. And that even if they're flying by themselves, they're never alone. You can usually see quite a few together, but there's a freedom to it. They're once they're up in the sky, it doesn't take that much effort anymore. And so it's part of part of the evolution for humanity right now is starting to know when to utilize that Puma energy and know when to utilize the condor energy and at times ground back in in that snake energy. Or you may be in a condor energy in your business and in a snake energy in your relationship because you put so much time and attention in your business before. So there's not one that's better. There's not one that is, it's not a hierarchy. They're different. Just depends on where you want to be. Uh, that's my favorite place to show people because that's mm. where the the fun is for me. I love yeah. Kuma energy too,
0: though. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing thing. Definitely so much, so crazy how much I resonated with that. But yeah, in, when we talked about this theme of shamanic strategist, I already notice how much individuality seems to be in your process so just a really quick one or two minute thing is it really that you speak with the person one-on-one dive deep into the intention and then have the journey then recap? So, really guide them during the process basically is that
1: well now and since the borders have been uh closed down our focus now is training facilitation what that means is we're not teaching people how to dose people we're teaching our process of self-identification of how to prepare yourself for journeys and in that post-aftercare we're basically teaching the process of identifying first for yourself how to prepare for ceremonies what resonates for you creating your system the way that we've done for one-on-one the way we've done for groups and then in the post-care and we talk about rituals and how to anchor yourself in and how to not control your experience but you can influence it deeply and it becomes a lot more powerful when you do and it's not from a space of control it's collaboration with the plants and the substances. Um, and then in the post care it's all about the integration process and so right now we are fully committed to teaching our integration process really the whole preparation pre and post, because now more than ever people are exploring these things on their own we can't go to Peru there's a lot of limitations. And so we want to ensure that people are finding their unique path to their truth to become their own shamanic strategist. And then for their community, a lot of life coaches and optimization coaches have clients exploring psychedelics and microdosing and, you know, in different capacities with our journaling process. That is the strategy. But the strategy is what actualizes lasting change because there's metrics, there's things you're actually identifying to see if you're going in the direction that you want to. And it takes more self-responsibility. You're not placing it on the plants. You're not placing it on your coaches and facilitators. And yet it eases. experience for the facilitators or whoever the coach is, because it's teaching a self-facilitation too. So right now, that's our main focus, um, and to be stepping into an educational role of how we've developed these strategies, so that whether you're doing it to connect with source God or the universe or your ancestors, or whether it's for This life-changing business you're developing, at the end of the day, we're here to help each person identify what that is for them. Because when someone returns solely to their heart, when someone connects fully to their purpose, even if it's just the purpose for today, they treat people differently. They walk through the world differently. They show up with more kindness than consideration, compassion, and hold space for others to do the same. And so for now, we're doing that with something called the Psychedelic Space Program with the Psychedelic Space Podcast, which is derived from all those interviews like we've had on Clubhouse to continue these conversations to help each person find their way home.
0: Coming to an end, I would love to hear like one, like core lessons that you learned from learning the plants, from the plants and just tell people how, how, where can they find you? I will put the links in the show notes for, we mentioned at the beginning, put you some resources.
1: I would say the two things I always return back to, one is this question, who told you that? As I go into whether it's shamanic practices or education or medicine, who told you that And then self-reflecting, do I believe that? Do I ascribe to that and choose to participate? So that was hugely powerful because I realized how often I would say, well, this is the way it is. According to who? And according to what circumstances? So that was really, really powerful. Um, Maybe i just leave it with that for today. You know, well, actually one more thing. One more question, whether you're in your experience, in your journey or in life, am I making this easy? or am I making this hard? Because even the idea, especially for entrepreneurs, the harder, faster, more now, does all that energy transfers into psychedelics too. And so people will think if I do it more often or take bigger doses, I'll get results faster. That does not translate in this work. Quite often, what your system needs is the opposite, not more, but slowing down and less to start to learn nuance. Because there's so much we miss going 70 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour down the street all of the time. Think of a time you got stuck in traffic and you noticed for the first time there was like a Thai restaurant off to the side of a street you'd pass every day, but you missed it. We're always missing things. So when I slow down and ask myself, am I making this easy or am I making this hard? Am I making this challenging? Because I believe the more challenging something is, the more benefit I'll get that shows up in this work too. So if I was going to summarize it, I think that's what it would be. And then as far as resources, the Psychedelic Space podcast, and then the Psychedelic Space program. So if you're in the US, you can text COLE to 22999. That'll direct the links, or you can go to the psychedelicspace.com. And that just gives you straight to the program, we are doing it as a hybrid, so that if people cannot get to the US for some reason, whether because of travel restrictions, physical restrictions. uh, We're doing it uh, in a very high quality way so that people actually feel like they're there, even if they aren't able to come and it's three full days of training in depth. Um, from mindset, NLP, shamanic traditions, some of our teachers uh, to also the research and biohacking stacks of how you can support yourself through this evolution. And then of course, teaching the shamanic strategy of how Mm -hmm. we have explored all of these dimensions and realms and helped others to find their way through it.
0: Love it. Amazing closing, amazing mission that you are on. And definitely we will keep in touch because that's one thing I'm so excited about to be part of this change. So yeah, thanks for being in the show and we'll definitely see each other on Clubhouse. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in today on the Entrepreneurial Brain podcast. If you like the show, please take a minute to review our show on iTunes or any other podcast platform. This will help me a ton to reach a bigger audience with the podcast, but also the most important thing to really get world-class leaders, world-class performers, experts, scientists, and ultimately just create amazing episodes with a lot of value for you. Thanks in advance for your support. My name is Maurice, and I will see you on the next show of the Entrepreneurial Brain Podcast.